I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street, and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Get up, go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations does this You've go out? You've got to get mad. You've got to say, I know it goes to Louisville and Atlanta. We're not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell, and say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. That was uh, 40 years ago, folks. Howard Beale ranting and raving in the famous movie Network. Now, a lot of people are mad as hell, and a lot of people are standing up and saying, I'm mad as hell, and i got to do something about it. And certainly having just returned from the Democratic National Committee meeting in Atlanta, I certainly have a lot of sympathies for people who feel that way. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast. One of the things to be either angry or just astonished by is the fact that all these people who have failed, the insiders, the consultants, the people who get millions of dollars from the party and from donors continue to exist, continue to hold down these positions, no matter what happened at the DNC election. And I have a piece right now up on the Hill newspaper, which I will link to at the podcast site. And that piece really talks about what I call the edifice complex of the liberal progressive elites. Now, my regular listeners know that we've talked all about the Democratic National Committee fight, the fight over who would be the chair of the Democratic National Committee. And I actually pointed out in the numerous podcasts that we covered this issue that This isn't the most important election. This isn't the most important thing. Who is going to be 
the DNC chair, and we now know it is Tom Perez. And actually, part of the reason that I've been relentlessly optimistic is that there's so much happening out there beyond the DNC, beyond the national structure, so much happening positively that there's a lot to look forward to and be encouraged by in terms of the grassroots energy, the organizing by progressive forces throughout the country. So it's good to feel a little Beal-like, and certainly anger is a good thing when it's channeled for positive reasons. But I always remain optimistic. And we're going to talk today about some of the great reasons to be optimistic in the wake of the Democratic National Committee's leadership fight. And just to underscore the things I've talked about just briefly over the last few podcasts, there's so much positive stuff happening. If you look in California, as I pointed out in one of our recent podcasts, Bernie Kratz and Progressives won over 600 seats in the state party committee elections that happened recently. We now have chairs of state parties who are Berniecrats in Nebraska, Washington State, and in Hawaii. And we're going to be talking, in fact, with the chair of the Hawaii Democratic State Party in this podcast. My first guest is Jason Eno. Jason is the founder and chair of an effort called Dem Enter, which describes itself as, quote, rebuilding the Democratic Party from the precinct up. So far, Dementor is largely a network of people nationwide who support each other with ideas and skills online, largely on Facebook and Twitter. And Jason is one of those people active at the local level in Hawaii. Among other things, he's the deputy secretary and treasurer and outreach director of the Environmental Caucus of the party. And he's also the assistant to the Democratic Party chair. All of these are non-paid positions. And Jason, tell us a little bit about what the impetus was to launch the Dem Enter movement. Well, at the National Convention in Philadelphia, there was an initiative to uh, do a Dem exit, and I recognized that as a failed strategy, uh, if you could even call it a strategy. We need to, we need to become the party uh, versus leave them to their own devices. So it was born at the convention this past July when, as you point out, uh, there were many activists, particularly obviously supporters of Bernie Sanders, who were quite angry at the result and felt that their voices were not heard at the convention. So you thought, okay, we have to have an antidote to that to find a place for activists and people who want to stay in the party. Absolutely, yes. At the convention, the hashtag was born, hashtag DemEnter, and being that all the delegates that had, that made it there had had to jump through so many hoops and had learned so much about the Democratic Party, not to mention my own experience in Hawaii of organizing the state uh, for the state convention, which resulted in Tim Vanderveer, uh, a Bernie supporter, becoming our state party chair. I had gone through the process, and many of us had, and, and, of course, many people have been working on this for many, many years. Um, so at this point, it, it seemed that there was enough enough numbers to have the effect that we needed, and it just kind of went from there. Uh, once, once, the, once the general ele- the nomination was over and the general election was coming up, there was also a lot of uh, bickering on Facebook uh, between Bernie Sanders supporters, whether whether we should move into the party or move out. And so that was part of it, too, kind of as a 
sanctuary city, so to speak, on Facebook um, to allow a place for those who chose to remain in the party to communicate. And how do you differentiate or assess the legitimate debate within Democrats, whether some people are arguing to leave the party or not, the actual critique of the Democratic Party, because I think we both agree and many people who are still committed to fighting in the Democratic Party agree that the Democratic Party is quite sick and in some ways quite corrupt. And so what's the dividing line where you think debate is legitimate versus not? Uh, I think that we need to have a specific strategy. And so uh, the, the debate... The debate between whether to stay in or move out should really be based in fact and strategy versus emotions. Uh, Emotional responses are not effective very often in, uh, in politics. And how do you actually operate, though? That's one of the questions I thought. I mean, I did like your Facebook page, and I think you have 8,000 plus supporters, if that one can describe them as such. Is it just simply a network of people to support each other, give place a a home, as you point out, or do you actually have funds? Do you want to support people, endorse people in races? Is it a training operation? Uh, It's all of the above. It's it's certainly growing. Um, so we have we have started a website on Nation Builder um, that is uh, dementer d e m e n t e r dot nationbuilder dot com. Uh, that's going to be more of our more of our strategy um, solid platform. Whereas Facebook is a community, um, which which really fits in well with some of the work that our revolution and whatnot is doing. So it's a it's a grassroots community um, which provides support as well as ideas and knowledge uh, for those who are uh, interested in going this route. So if there are people who are trying to connect with them, Enter, how do they do that either social media-wise or in other ways? They can search Facebook. Search hashtag DemEnter, D-E-M-E-N-T-E-R. That is where our community is, and that's, that's really the best entry point at this, at this time. Also, we are building the Nation Builder uh, website, and you can find us on Twitter at um, DemEnter2016. And I think you may have touched on something that I caught on to as I traveled around the country as a surrogate for Bernie Sanders over the course of the campaign. It struck me that lots of people simply felt that they wanted to be part of the party or involved, but they really didn't know how the mechanisms worked and how to enter into just running for a local state party seat or a local election. So a lot of it was about... I was going to say ignorance, but just not having the knowledge. Very much so, yeah. And and, all, and depending on the state or the locale, uh, that knowledge is actually literally hidden. And it's all very, uh, there's quite a bit of lawyer speak, if you will, in bylaws. It's, it's quite arcane in, in a way. Uh, so providing a bit of a translation, um, a finding some friends who in the area, in your state, what, what have you, that know the system in and out and then being able to 
feel confident moving in that they have some sort of support system. They're not going in alone and, and having to figure everything out themselves. And what's your connection, if any, either formally or informally with Our Revolution, which, as many of my listeners know, is the successor organization to the Bernie Sanders campaign? Are you working together? Do you have ongoing contact with them? Yes, we, uh, we, we do. We not, there's no official um, association between us, but due to the fact that we're doing similar work, uh, I, I see it as we're the grassroots community, uh, and they are producing tools, and they also, of course, have access to their list. While they, because of the makeup of their list, they have to be uh, open to all approaches that would include Green Party, Independent, etc. They're also working very hard on the, uh, reforming the Democratic Party. And so we, many of, many, many of our members are volunteers with our revolution or in some way involved with them, as well as some of their staff. Uh, I speak to several people in their staff on a very regular basis. And, um, you know, this past weekend in Atlanta, we, we had the opportunity to speak with uh, Jeff Weaver um, and several, several board members from our revolution. So we're we're actively talking, and we actually look forward to, to sitting down with the Our Revolution board and hashing out how we can best work together. Uh, while we don't want to blend our organizations in any way, uh, because we're headed the same direction and we have the same goals, um, it, it's it's a very very useful uh, it's very useful for both organizations, our association. And to remind my listeners, Jeff Weaver was uh, the campaign manager for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and he's now the president of Our Revolution. I actually saw him as well in Atlanta. I wonder, from your point of view, how you feel coming out of Atlanta. One of the things that struck me is where is the breaking point, even for those people like you and me who think that they're still worthwhile, that it's still worthwhile to struggle within the Democratic Party, where is the breaking point where people will say enough with the Democratic Party? Because from, from my own point of view, I've been critical of the party for, geez, at least 20, 25 years, if not longer. And I do respect people who have rational analysis of the shortcomings of the Democratic Party, including some of those people who say, as a result of those rational criticisms, they don't want to be part of the party. I'm wondering, from your point of view, is there some point at which you're fighting to have change in the party where you're going to basically say, this is not going to work, we need something new? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question and really really gets down to the, the heart of the dem-enter, dem-exit um, debate. My, my, my feeling is that I'm going to keep going until 2021. The spring of 2021, the new chair will be elected. Uh, Perez just got it this year. And by then, essentially every position in the Democratic Party will have been up for grabs. Now, the, the bottom line where I would say, okay, we got to do something different, that would, the only, the only ways that we can quote-unquote lose is A, one, give up, uh, and but to answer your question specifically, if the rules 
are changed in front of us uh, to prevent us further from from being able to do what we want to do. So essentially, if the Democratic Party completely gives up the democratic uh, process within its own party, at that point, there's nothing that can be done, frankly. Um, currently, although it often appears as an oligarchy, which in many ways certainly is, um, there is a democratic process in place that can be utilized. So if that's corrupted to the degree that we're unable to um, really become the leadership, that would that would be kind of the last straw, I, I would say, or, or a, something that we can't get through, around, or over. Right, and I think what you're referring to is that over the next few years, there will be elections at the state party to elect actual, for example, delegates to the DNC. Uh, let's make it clear to people that the DNC members, all 447 people who voted, they're actually not members of Congress mostly. They're really people who are elected at the state party level. And one reason that Hawaii and Nebraska and Washington State were much more pro-Bernie is that those folks were elected at state party conventions and in state party elections to represent the people. In other words, represent Bernie Sanders. That's going to take some time to translate into the positions at the party. And certainly you would probably agree that one criteria and one standard of measuring it is what role the DNC will play in the nominating process for the next presidential campaign since we all agree that Debbie Wasserman Schultz was corrupt and tilted the process towards Hillary Clinton. That's one thing that Perez is going to be judged by. Is, am I right about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I would say, uh, furthermore, the, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, there, there's many misconceptions which we try to dispel. Uh, the DNC is actually a committee of 447 people. Uh, 200 of them come directly out of the out of the state parties or, or the state conventions, uh, various states have different methods. And then another 200 or so um, come from various organizations as well as appointments. So it's, it's, it's a complex thing, and frankly, when it comes down to it, if you read the, all of the answers of how to do all of this are in the bylaws, either from your county or your state or the national So really what you're saying, and this is an encouragement of people to go to Dem Enter and join up, a lot of people can find out information and get some sort of support for working within their state parties to change who represents them. For example, as you point out, Tim Vandeveer is now the chair of the Hawaii Democratic Party. He's a Bernie Krat. Jane Klebe is now the chair of the Nebraska Democratic Party. She's a Bernie Krat, and you go go down the list. There are other people seizing control of their party mechanisms. Maybe not yet state chairs, but certainly beginning to be elected at the county and the state committee levels. And that slowly but surely filters up and results in having more power. Certainly, and I would add that there's actually there's uh, some state party chairs or uh, executive state executive committees, uh, members of state executive committees who. You, you couldn't call a Bernie crap. They supported Hillary in the primaries um, and could be, even be considered establishment who 
also support the work that we we are doing because they see that the party's own dysfunction. I mean, the, if you look at the wins and losses for the Democratic Party over the last course of the last, say, 10, 15 years, um, it's clear that there's an issue. And so those people who really who really want to see the party and the platform pushed forward uh, do embrace uh, what we're up to, no matter if they support Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. Uh, the, the people who really, really believe in the platform and what the Democratic Party says it is and what we all know it should be. And indeed, the chair of the Hawaii Democratic Party hails from the Bernie Sanders movement. No surprise, since Bernie won 70% of the vote in the caucus, even though the establishment sided with Secretary Clinton. Hawaii, in fact, shows that the small-D Democratic nature of the party doesn't really work out always. Bernie won 17 delegates and Clinton got eight in the actual vote, but the nine Hawaii superdelegates ignored the people's vote, and the majority sided with Clinton. And in fact, my next guest is Tim Vandeveer, who was elected to the post of Democratic Party chair in Hawaii in June of last year, beating three other candidates who were insiders and lobbyists. Tim is an environmental and union activist, and he also led a class action lawsuit against American Savings Bank, alleging that the bank processed debit card transactions in a way that maximized overdraft fees, and they won that lawsuit. And Tim, you know, uh, lots of men, particularly, and boys, uh, dream about growing up to be firemen and maybe astronauts, and maybe they want to be rocket scientists or maybe a baseball player. And I'm sure your lifelong dream was to be chair of the Democratic Hawaii (laughs) Party, I'm sure, right? Not exactly. Uh, if you had asked me this time last year if I would be doing this job right now, I, I probably would have laughed just as hard as I just did, or maybe even harder. I figured that. So now in more well, more seriousness, w- one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you in the context of the Democratic National Committee meeting that we were just both at is that there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the results of the election and what went on at the Democratic National Committee meeting. But one of the things that I've been emphasizing over the last number of months is how much positive energy and positive progress has been happening at the state level. If you look at the Bernie, the Bernie Kratz running for office and the people taking over state parties and doing all sorts of activism. And I thought Hawaii was a good example. So give us, in a nutshell, how you became the chair of the party. Well, I, uh, I, I followed Bernie's advice, I guess, first and foremost, and I, I decided to do something to be the change that I wanted to see, to actually run for uh, an office that I didn't really give much thought to before. But um, as I became more involved uh, with his campaign as it got closer to our state convention, uh, realized that of the four folks that were running, 
I was not only the only Bernie Sanders supporter, but um, the only non-lobbyist in some capacity. Each each of the other candidates um, were paid lobbyists, and so uh, I decided to step up. So you came back and decided to jump into running for the state party position. As you point out, the other three people were lobbyists, and you thought obviously that didn't fit with the Bernie Sanders idea of a revolution. Correct. So I became a delegate uh, during our, our presidential preference poll, which is basically our state's caucus. Um, the Bernie campaign, I think, learned from the states, you know, the, the many states that had preceded Hawaii in voting, uh, that there was going to be a huge outpouring of support, especially in states which were already blue, um, for Senator Sanders. And so they actually advised us when we were out trying to organize our precincts and our districts that we needed to stick around after the vote for president um, to, to get elected into the different offices within the party. So you saw a lot of the, the energy and the momentum from the, the national campaign translating into grassroots networking, and folks running for office. I initially ran for district officer. Um, I was elected the chair of my district, and then, of course, learned that of the candidates for the party chair, none of them were supporters of Bernie Sanders, and then, like I said, they were lobbyists. So I threw my, my name in the, in the hat and uh, very narrowly won that election. Tell me what the reaction was when you decided to run for this. I assume that the establishment was not that happy. They were not, and I was told by more than one longtime party uh, member that I had zero chance of winning that election, particularly given the fact that I spent very little money in campaigning for it. Uh, it was really just a trip down to the local Kinko's <laughs> to print out uh, some of my campaign literature, uh, just to let folks know that I, I did have a history uh, working as a state delegate and also working on campaigns. I worked as part of my labor union both on President Obama's 2008 and 2012 campaign and also that I was an environmental activist in the grassroots. So, but that was it. And how did you have to turn people out? Were, was this an election of only people who were already delegates or was it just rank-and-file people who showed up to the state party meeting? No, it was an election of people that were already delegates, a little over 1,000. Uh, and I won by about 28 votes. And how did you work and lobby them? Did you do this prior to the actual meeting over a cu- number of weeks? I did. It was it was really just a couple of weeks, but mainly it was over the three days of our state convention. Um, and in particular, the two days, the day before and the day of the election, just, you know, echoing what Senator Sanders talked about, echoing the, the ideals uh, of the New Deal <laughs> that I believe very strongly in, and talking about bringing our party, returning our party, our local, our state party, back to grassroots, uh, back to its grassroots, and in particular in, in the realm of fundraising. And what I'm interested in is actually, though, let's drill down a little bit into the mechanics. Did you walk the halls? Did you have other colleagues, whips, supporters of your campaign who basically went to other people? Tell us a few things about how you actually go about winning an election at a state convention like that. Yes, to both. I, I both walked the halls, had uh, individual conversation, addressed the different caucuses within the parties, and then also had some supporters that knew me uh, through my labor union, that knew me through the Bernie campaign, uh, who uh, actually helped to whip votes and make sure that we had 
uh, our supporters lined up, particularly the, those, particularly those on the neighbor islands, uh, because there was a lot of response for Senator Sanders in the rural areas of our state and those of the other counties, the other islands. And you mentioned, and I, I guess part of this was a roughly easier job, and I say that advisedly because Bernie did win with such an overwhelming majority the pre- presidential preference primary, so there was certainly a built-in support for him, but you still had to work the people to make sure that they knew why they should vote for you and to show up and vote, right? Yes, I did. I really, really did. And, you know, we are a, a democratic state and have them. Our party has had primacy for the last 50 years, more or less. Uh, but over time, the party has, has shifted a little more center-right, in my opinion, um, than maybe what it was um, at its founding. And so, you know, we have a lot of uh, good Democrats, but very establishment-centric Democrats. And so it was a lot of just trying to articulate my position and also let folks know that I wasn't coming in to burn the house down, but simply reform the party. One of the things I really stressed was revolution, this notion of revolution, because here it's not something that the establishment can say, well, you know, that's that's too much change too quickly. Our party, the Democratic Party of Hawaii, founded in what was called the 1954 revolution, where you had plantation workers, union workers, uh, some supporters of the Communist Party, and Japanese of American ancestry um, who had fought in the war were not represented uh, or underrepresented or, or completely not represented, and they came together, overthrew the white power structure, the colonial remnant uh, of the, the territory of Hawaii, and breathed life in the Democratic Party. And, and like I said, that's been um, in power ever since. And you mentioned that you had to work against three other candidates who essentially were lobbyists and therefore presumably much more pro-business. And was that a very telling and important issue to people that not only were they lobbyists, but it really had you espousing progressive politics, if you will, the Bernie Sanders platform versus, if you will, the more centrist, neoliberal kind of economics that has been so disastrous for workers in the whole country? Yeah, it, it definitely mattered to supporters of Bernie Sanders, just because those things had come up so much during the presidential campaign. Um, to establishment Democrats, it, it, much here is based on personal relationships. So, you know, I don't mean to, to denigrate in, in any sense uh, that the folks that were also running, they're all good, good people. Um, and there were a lot of relationships that were already established, uh, particularly among one candidate who has a long history in the party. So some of it came down to that, but of the ones, the newer members to the party, the folks that came in with the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, yeah, I I certainly talked about the failures of neoliberalism. I talked about, even in our state, um, how we're not addressing some of the things that are articulated in our platform, even. You know, as Democrats, we're just not doing a good job on delivering those things, and that's why we've come so far away from the revolution of 54 and the founding of our party. So... Obviously, you probably benefited from the reality that it was a four-person race and people were splitting the vote. So now let's fast forward to the current situation. And how have you worked to try to consolidate your position? Because obviously, at the next election for state party chair, I'm going to take a wild guess that they're going to be gunning for you. Uh, I don't know that 
that that's the case. I mean, you know, I think it would be perhaps naive to not think that to some extent there will be a challenge. But what I've really tried to do is show the more skeptical members, the establishment, quote-unquote establishment members, that um, I'm not going to burn the house down, that we're making sound um, fiscal decisions. Uh, we've moved into a new headquarters. We've really improved our outreach uh, in general with members of the party. The transparency, I think, is a lot better. Um, we've hired a new permanent executive director. So, you know, we're really providing a foundation. And like I said, we're trying to nurture this notion of reviving the revolution, if, it, if as it were, you know, that, that this re revolution of 54 is something that's a good thing every now and again for the party to remember those progressive roots. Um, and so I'm not, you know, not this radical revolutionary, but simply somebody that's coming in trying to get our party um, back on track, uh, both locally and nationally. And I think the national situation helps that as well. And as you point out, you are a Democratic state. Both your United States senators are Democrats. You're not in the position that some people are in other states where you're facing Republicans. You know, we just came from Georgia, where although Atlanta is quite Democratic, you have a Republican governor, a very right-wing Republican governor who's doing all sorts of havoc. So my, my question is, how are you using your position to at least install and encourage other Bernie-crats progressives to run for those local races that eventually develop leadership to get into those positions, either the United States Senate or United States Congress, whatever those might be? Well, I, I guess in a couple of ways. The first would be to just have that, that very conversation, to actually uh, connect with people every time I'm out um, advocating for our positions, articulating our values, talking about the party. I'm encouraging people in those one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, and we try to do it through our social media and, and Internet presence. The other way is to actually go in and help some of those states uh, that, that you just talked about, some of the ones that do have a problem uh, with a Republican majority or even the purple states, and that is training our folks, our people here, uh, to go in and do the work uh, on the ground in swing states, in the battlegrounds, because when they come back, and I know this from personal experience, like I said, as part of my labor union being trained and sent to Wisconsin uh, in 2008, you come back much more politically aware. You come back a much better Democrat, in my opinion. And I think you're also, you have more sense of a, like a class analysis. Mm -hmm. um, you see um, poverty that's very similar to the, what it looks like in Hawaii, but different in other ways. And so it, it's, it's just a real growing experience. So that's the other way. I think people, when they come back, are much more likely to run for office and get involved. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what union you belong to. I was a member of Unite Here, Local 5. And your current, do you currently view yourself as a union activist, or have you moved in more into the political realm? More the political realm, but I tell you, I keep a very close relationship uh, with leadership and the organizers in my union. You know, it's, this is a, a very tight-knit community here, um, only about a million residents total, most of whom live in the city of Honolulu. But Local 5 has a huge presence because it is, uh, one of our two largest industries, the tourism business. And so they represent a lot of the hotel and restaurant workers who, uh, or service workers who work with the hotels, as I did um, about a decade ago. And so I, I maintain a real close relationship with them. I'm shocked, shocked, shocked to hear that tourism is one of the most <laughs> important industries in Hawaii. <laughs> Who, who, who would have thunk it, huh? So right. to wrap up, um, let me ask you a final question and get your thoughts about this. For the Bernie Kratz and the people who are 
quite irritated and agitated about the results of the Democratic National Committee meeting and the prospects of a more open and progressive national party. There's a lot to be seen whether the new Democratic National Committee chairman, Tom Perez, will in fact continue to be progressive, at least in terms of restraining the insiders and making the party an open and welcome place. What do you say to people based on your experience about what they should be doing at the state and local level? Keep the pressure on. Keep the pressure on their local, their state officials, such as myself and the National Committee man and committee woman, um, and and hold his feet to the fire. I I like uh, the new chair. I like Tom Perez. I think he's a fine person. I was disappointed that Keith Ellison did not win that election. I thought it was a smart uh, political move and a smart move to unify the party, of course, to to, uh, make Representative Ellison the deputy chair. That's not something that's in the bylaws, though, as you know, so we'll see if it's more than just a symbolic gesture. I think it's great that he gets to stay in Congress. And we've come a very long way in a very short amount of time. Did we get the results we wanted? No, but we've come a long, long way. And so I think it's important to to recognize what we've been able to do. But for for the people on the the ground, in the precincts and districts in our state, keep the pressure on because that is going to move right up through the ranks. And every single time I connect with the DNC, which is a weekly basis, I'm going to be echoing any concerns. Um, I'm going to be asking tough questions. I'm going to make sure that we get uh, the kind of leadership that I think we need right now and our members need right now. Last but certainly not least, who better to bring back on the show than my friend Nina Turner? Nina and I talked at length about the future of the Democratic Party way back in episode two, which you can access in our archive. All of the podcasts are at the archive at workinglife.org. And that was soon after the Democratic National Convention. Uh, Nina is actually a voting member of the DNC, so she's got that unique perspective. And Nina and I were both in Atlanta together, hung out, chatted. And boy, did we have a lot to talk about. And Nina, while there's so much to talk about after the Democratic National Committee and certainly the Democratic National Committee chair race did not turn out the way you and I might have wanted it to. But before we talk about that, or maybe we don't even have to talk about that, the thing that I'm left with among many thoughts and the thing that really still blows me away is the notion that these Democratic National Committee people, by a majority, voted to continue to allow corporate donations to flow into the party. And I I just walked out of there thinking, God, do people not hear what's going on out there about why people are angry? What was your thinking about that? Right. I mean, that is really, to me, I guess that was the omen. You know, you brought it up. That was really the first vote, you know, uh, substantive vote on the floor before we got to the candidates, and that just speaks volumes, yes, that they that they did not want to, they, being the voting members, the majority of the voting members, did not want to return to what President Obama had set up. So, you know, the failure to reinstitute the lobbyist, uh, the lobbyist ban is, is just, it just left me speechless, as I am right now. Over the <laughs> yes, you expressed exactly what you felt back then perfectly. 
And oh my God, it's sad. I know it's it's almost as if they literally don't hear what's happening out there in the grassroots, and not just from Democrats or progressives like you and me, but generally from mm-hmm. the people who view the whole system being corrupt and this lobbyist money, this one percent money, these corporate donations being the best example of that. But they don't care. I, I, I think it's bigger than that. It is a arrogance, if you will that they don't have to listen to the people. It's the same arrogance that caused the Democrats, you know, in my opinion, to lose in 2016, i.e., Mr. Trump is so bad that no one in their right mind would vote for him, would support him, and it just disregarded the populist message that he was really pushing. And while he had a solid message that he never changed, he had an economic message that never changed, uh, during 2016, the Democrats did not. And so the Democrats lost sight of what the people not only were saying, Jonathan, but how people are feeling in their everyday lives. And the Democrats are still missing the mark. So to me, it's just arrogance and it is an unwillingness to see the realities and also to hear the cries of everyday people in this country. And if the Democrats continue that arrogance, we will continue to lose. And what was striking then in the larger picture, there was really no coming to grips in a serious manner about how bad, you know, the party's in a shambles and how that all happened at this DNC. Most of the rhetoric, and you heard this as much as I did, was the Russians did it. The Russians did it. And with all due respect, Vladimir Putin did not spend a decade destroying the Democratic power at the state level. As you know, two-thirds of the state legislatures are now controlled by Republicans. And you're from Ohio. You know this quite well. I'm just, you know, shocked. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised. But, you know, there was no coming to grips with that at that meeting. No, they're tone deaf. Or, or maybe I didn't get the memo that... that uh... President Putin had been doing that over the last decade. Maybe he has, and you and I just didn't get the memo. But at some point, we, the Democrats have to accept responsibility for where we are today. And the election of Mr. Trump, in many ways, is just the straw that broke the camel's back. It's not the first straw. You know, it was piling on all along. And, and we, collectively, lost sight of that. And now we are in a conundrum that... Uh, that seemingly we can't get out out of we can't we can't you know change this this the, the reality by having the same thinking that got us in in this situation in the first place and I think it was the uh, brilliant Einstein who has already defined exactly what insanity is. Yes, indeed. Now. You know, Perez, I had said before to people who asked, and I said it a number of times on TV, that, you know, he has decent politics, and he was a pretty damn good labor secretary, if you look within the general framework of the traditional analysis. I mean, he tried to do some things that supported workers, but let's face it, he was put up by the controlling elites, the people who still want to hold on to power. And so here's my question. It seems to me that he has a very, very, very small window, a short period of time to show the grassroots, the Bernie Kratz, that the party really is going to change, and particularly that it's going to be open when it comes to party elections to letting the process play out. Is that your feeling too? Yeah, it, it is. And again, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because 
people continue to, to view the lens that just because I'm for somebody, you know, that one could be for somebody, but they're totally against the other person, and that is not the case. Yet, Secretary Perez has some decent policies that he has promoted, he has pushed. That's not, that's not, the, that's not the issue here. But the issue is the direction by which this party will take. And will it take that direction with the fervor, the same kind of fervor that we are hearing out there among the people? And Jonathan, not all of these people are Democrats who are speaking out. Not all of these people would consider themselves progressives, but they are crying out for somebody in places and positions of power to hear their voices and to act when you have that power. I really think that uh, the Dr. Reverend Bernice King really set it off right, you know, when, when she was there. And, and I, I obviously, you know, folks did not listen and did not heed her words, but, you know, one of the things that she said in her remarks is that she hopes that the Democratic Party would, you know, would, would, would listen, you know, to the people and, and be what it, what it can be. And, and I thought that was just a very good way to, to get us started. Obviously, that did not happen. So, yes, the shorter answer to what you just asked me is that there is a very small window for uh, Chairman Perez now to really show that he gets it and that he wants to bring the party together. And, and that and, and making uh, Congressman Ellison a deputy chair, if you will, which I'm not even sure if there's anything in the bylaws for that, is, is, is that's just a superficial start, if you will. I mean, what I want to know is if, if Congressman Ellison is going to have some real power, some, be able to have some real influence to be able to help turn the DNC around. That's really what is most important. Titles are good, but purpose is better. And so by what purpose will he utilize the leadership of Congressman Ellison? That is the most important thing. Right. And one of the things that we kind of ignore is what I call the permanent liberal progressive edifice complex, you know, a whole set of consultants and people who make millions of dollars off the party, those people who run the super PACs like Priorities USA and the David Brocks of the world, they're kind of like the scum of the earth to me. And the people that keep flowing in no matter what, it's almost like it doesn't matter who's in charge. And they do. It is important because they hold the purse strings and they get a whole bunch of money and they decide what the quote-unquote messages, what the policies are, and how the campaigns look. So if Perez doesn't clean house on those folks, I don't quite see how, in a concrete way, a new kind of party is going to look at the grassroots level, at the state level in those campaigns. Totally agree, Jonathan. I mean, he has to come in there and clean house, and they have to show as you, and I know they spend millions upon millions of dollars, and... um, I'm blanking on the organization that did a review of the contracts, for example, that various groups get get to earn, you know, earn, and, and, and are awarded. And they are really lacking in, in diversity of those types of contracts. So you're right, the same folks continue to get them. But even when you, if you look at and you want to consider gender and ethnicity as a measure, you know, i.e., any contracts the African-American companies get or Hispanic companies get, you know, once they compete, um, it is very clear that it is, the, it is the good old boys club when it comes to that, and that Democrats, even when they have the power to use um, their the purse string, if you will, when they have the power to do something different, to empower uh, other folks through helping organizations or businesses, companies grow, they don't even do that. 
Um, I found, I'm sorry, because I was rambling with my Reverend Bernice King, but I think this is so important. It really touched me because I sent this out on a tweet on Saturday. And she said, it is my hope and prayer that you become a party who understands the times. And, Jonathan, how profound is that? Back to the point that you have been making in your questioning of me, it is very clear that the Democratic Party does not understand the time. And for people who are want, listening, just to remind people what Nina is referring to is Dr. Bernice King, Reverend Bernice King, who was a daughter of Martin Luther King Jr., and she spoke at the DNC meeting as kind of a keynote speaker to give some sort of spirit to the place, and obviously mm-hmm. that's what Nina was referring to. Um, so here's a question that is... Um, you probably know better than most because so many people come up to you as an important progressive leader across the country and they probably did it at the DNC. And they're saying to you, I'm fed up with the party or I really don't believe in it. So what do you say to people like that at this point, given what happened at the DNC? I say, good God, I feel you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I feel your pain. I feel your pain. I mean, what, what does it benefit me or any other authentic leader to pretend that I can just say the words unity and poof, it happens. And that is what was happening there. We're unified. We get it. We're strong. No, we are not. And unless we face that and the fact that we might not, you know, the collective we, we have work to do. And there's nothing wrong with saying that because at least people will know that we have the good sense to call this situation what it is and the good sense to say we might not be as united as, you know, I, whoever that I is, would want us to be. I know we have a lot of work to do. There's, there was lots of pain from 2016 that people are still feeling. I know uh, some people or almost over half of the people that voted did not vote for me. But let me tell you something. I understand you. I feel your pain. And I'm going to do everything that I can to earn your support if you did not vote for me and not to negate your feelings. Every time they get up there and say, we're united, we're strong, it's a you want to you want to use a foul word. You want to use a strong word, but you're too nice. It, it, it's, it's messed up. It's I mean, bullshit. It's <laughs> yes, the only BS I want to deal with is Bernie Sanders. Okay, the other <laughs> BS I do not want to deal with. And so people laugh at us. They they think we're they they think we are out of touch every time we make statements like that and don't qualify those statements. And we're we continue to make the same mistake. So I understand that them exit. I, I get it. You know, I don't know where I am quite right now with that, but I can say to, to your listeners that I'm fed the hell up too. I'm fed up with this. And, and I'm tired of carrying a mantle, a, a false narrative. If people in leadership have no intention on doing the right thing for people, I can't continue this way. And I just spoke earlier in this podcast to Jason Eno, who is the founder and chair of Dem Enter, and he was talking about the debate, in fact, between Dem Enter and Dem Exit. And I said similarly that what you just said, which is I have a lot of sympathy for the Dem Exit people. And Jason's point was that basically he's in this till 2021. In other words, his attitude is he's going to see whether the party wants to evolve. He wants to see whether the party is going to be open, whether it's going to allow the grassroots energy to 
show itself and be able to represent itself at the party elections at the state and local level and certainly is going to look at the process at the next presidential election to see if it's fair and open unless unlike the most recent one and if it's not he's out so i think for most democrats certainly i would say that's a certainly about jason and probably a little bit about me we're going to give them a little more time but not a whole lot of time yeah no i i get it there's some merit to that too you know and i want you know for the record i mean yes i supported congressman ellison he was my first choice my second choice my third fourth and fifth choice so but i do want to see chairman perez be successful and that success means doing the things that are necessary to clean up that party being honest about what happened in 2016, and also, uh, you know, sending message to the people who continue to be hurt that I get it. We don't see. We don't have to dwell on it as long as we can address it. And there has been, you know, uh, people need to fully address it, not not just tangentially address it, but we need to fully address it and then show by actions. So I think Jason's point and your point is well taken. Uh, I'm not sure if I can give them till 2021. We will see. But I really do believe that this party has about 18 months, 18 to 24 months, to really show uh, through action that it hears the cries of the majority of the people, not the 447 people who were eligible to vote, but the millions of people on the outside who did not have a vote, that they have to show to the people that they are willing to make the necessary changes so that we can win elections and then put forth the policy proposition. As you and I both know, politics is about winning. It's about who has the power and how they wield that power. So we can have the most progressive agenda in the world, but if we don't have people elected to office who can then take those policies and execute them, make them real, it doesn't mean a daggone thing. And as we just spoke about earlier, it certainly doesn't give you a lot of hope or it makes you have a lot of concern, or certainly I would have concern, that the very first thing they debate and they let pass is the idea that corporate money can still can still flow in and pollute the party, which in some ways is very much to the core of what we're talking about, which is the corruption, the power of billionaires, the 1%, the people who want these terrible trade deals, a bad economic system, all the things that we together were in the Bernie Sanders campaign to stop and change. Mm-hmm. No, that's it. I mean, you hit the nail on the head, and, and it was. Again, I, now kind of rethinking what happened on Saturday that was the omen. That, to me, was clearly the sign of, of what was to come. But I don't want people, oh, my God, to lose hope. You know, I really don't. I still, in my bones, believe that the direction, you know, that the DNC chair is just one position. It's a very powerful position, especially since Democrats have, you know, we don't control, you know, any of the offices on the federal level, and we certainly control, don't control very few on the state level. But I do believe that our county party structure is a place where progressive Democrats can take over. And you know a lot about that, and, and, and we can talk about a little more, even though I know you've done this in previous interviews, about what happened in California. I think that is a path forward for progressives that, that we can really start taking over on the county level. Yeah, the, the state, state level. Yeah, the state and local level. There's a lot of, lot of openings, and I'm going to be speaking uh, about that a lot in, in future podcasts. I want to end with an issue that was not specifically dealt with at the DNC, and it was a conversation I had at a bar because that's where you have, you know, 
all the interesting <laughs> conversations, right? I guess I'm letting people in on the secrets. All the conversations that will change the world happen at a bar. Well, we'll see, and I'll see what you think about this one. So I ran into Charlie King, who is an African-American political person here in New York State, and Charlie was pretty upset about progressives. And his point, to boil it down, was this. He says, you know, progressives are all talking about inclusivity and how we have to reach out to non-white populations. And then he said, look at all the staffs of all the senators, all the great progressive senators, and probably in the House of Representatives, but he was pointing out, frankly, senators that we would support. They're all, most of their staff people are white. And his question is, why is that? And I thought he brought up a very good point that, you know, when people are hiring, if you really live up to your credo and you're demanding that the society at large be more diverse and look like America, if I can use that cliche, then how the hell is it that Senate staffs don't look that way? What's your thought about that? Oh, he's absolutely right. Sean King wrote a couple of months ago a fantastic article. Yes, I saw about that. that. I saw that. And that the only senator, federal senator, that has an African American chief of staff is uh, is is, is uh, Senator Tim Scott. Tim Scott. Yep. Republican. I mean, Republican. Uh, right. The Republican. Uh, get, are you kidding me? So he is absolutely look, I continue to be pissed off about that. And he's right. Even people who I love, admire, and respect, I don't love all of them necessarily, but certainly can respect, but there is, 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 are a few that I have a deep affinity for. And so when you are in the position to hire and your staff does not reflect the values that we say we believe in, there is a problem. And Democrats, whether they're House or in the Senate, cannot blame that on the Republicans. So, yeah, that's the type of hypocrisy that makes it hard for people like me and you to continue to push this. Because even when we can control, even in contracting for the DNC, even when they're in control, they don't make sure that these, the hiring is diverse from the, the, the permanent staff all the way to the contracting staff. They don't team, rather. They don't make sure that it is the first. And then we got a nerve to talk about the Republicans. So people don't like hypocrisy, Jonathan. And that's exactly what we're dealing with. And since that article has come out, I don't see any change in the staff uh, in, the, in the federal Senate or in, in the House. And it's probably more in the Senate than it is in the House, but the House could, could use some change as well. It's time for our Robert Barron segment. And, you know, some years ago, I'm trying to remember which year it was, I marched for many, many days in the sleet and snow along with the Writers Guild of America members who are striking all the big media companies. And the Writers Guild represents news writers for film and television and radio. And that was a very bitter strike. And the reason I'm deciding to peg the media companies as the robber barons this week is there looks like there could be another strike with the Writers Guild members walking out. Now, understand, television is, as some writers said, 
in a golden age, and the companies are reaping profits hand over fist. Check out what three top CEOs in the media industry are making. Over at Walt Disney, Robert Iger is making $44.9 million. That was the last reported salary he made in the past year. At CBS, Leslie Moonves is making $56.7 million. Over at Time Warner, Jeff Books is making $31.4 million. I mean, these guys are at the top of the charts of the robber barons. And on the other hand, Hollywood's film writers have seen their wages steadily go down over the last two decades. Now, that's largely because the number of films have declined. But still, if you compare to what these robber barons are making at Walt Disney, at CBS, at Time Warner, I didn't even mention other companies. I just took those three who are at the top of the pay scale of all CEOs in the country. It is completely outrageous that there's the potential for a strike that these writers would not get their fair share. So this week, the robber barons, in anticipation of a potential strike coming very soon, this week, the robber barons of the week are the media companies, in particular, Iger, Moonvis, and Bukas, at those three companies, Walt Disney, CBS, and Time Warner. And that's it for the podcast this week. I want to thank my guests, Jason Eno, Tim Vandeveer, and Nina Turner. And of course, our audio editor is David Hebden. I hope you do subscribe to the podcast if you're not already a regular subscriber. And we would love to have you as a financial supporter of the podcast. You can do all that by going to workinglife.org and clicking on the podcast tab. And come back next week and listen to another episode of the Working Life Podcast. Podcast.